Good morning, everyone. If you're wondering what I'm doing up here, I have misplaced my Bible, but I have found it. We appreciate you being with us here this morning. We expect our members to be here, and they are, and we're blessed that we have a membership that is at just about every service. But if you're visiting to, with us this morning, you are our honored guests. Some of you I know are members of the Lord's Church, and some of you may be visiting the Lord's Church the first time. And you've probably noticed that we're a little different. Uh, we don't use bands. We don't use a piano. We don't use an organ. We just sing. And the reason we do that is because we believe that the Bible teaches, in which it does, that we are to make melody in our hearts, that we are to lift our voices to God. And so we follow, to the best of our ability, what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything in the New Testament about using instruments of music and worship. So we do try to follow, the, as I said, to the best of our ability, what God said and what we have examples of in the New Testament. Also, as Brother Chase pointed out, we take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week because we see in the New Testament that the churches there in the first century met on the first day of the week to break bread, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and they met every first day of the week, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, and 1 Corinthians 11, I believe around verse 18. Uh, that they assembled on the first day of the week. And so we do that every first day of the week because we want to be sure that when we stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, we could say, Lord, this is why we did the things that we did because here they are in your word. And we want to make sure that we are on solid foundation of Jesus the Christ. This morning we're going to consider Acts chapter 2. A brother of, of ours uh, by the name of James D. Bale wrote a book called Acts, the Hub of the Bible. And he says this about Acts chapter 2. He says, Acts 2 is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. It relates to much that has gone on before and it bears some relationship to all that follows after. The events which took place on that day were the fulfillment of promises and predictions which the God had made through the prophets and through Jesus Christ in his per personal ministry. It not only marks the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of many prophecies, but also marks the beginning of the reign as Jesus as Lord and Christ at God's right hand. Thus it marks the time of the establishment of the church. J. D. Bell, James D. Bell is the hub of the Bible. So we're going to consider Acts chapter 2, and we're going to consider what, the, what it teaches us. And the first thing that I want us to note, and you want to probably turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, or get your phones on that page, because we're going to be anchored there. The first thing that we notice from Acts chapter 2 is that it teaches us that God keeps his promises. Jesus told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem to receive power 
from on high. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through nine, uh, 49. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, he pretty much reiterates the same thing. You wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power from high. And that promise, as I have here, was the Holy Spirit. Turning your Bibles over to John chapter 14. And I want us to notice, notice a couple verses there. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. And then in verse 26... But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring into remembrance all things that I have said. So here we have this promise that Jesus makes to the apostles that tells them to stay in Jerusalem. You wait there, and then you will be endowed with this power from on high. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he tells them in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 that this is another comforter. And that word another there carries the idea of another of the same kind. In other words, it's another like me. In other words, Jesus is referring to his deity. So you're going to receive another comforter like me in some ways. And he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to say later to the apostles that he would bring into remembrance all the things that Jesus had taught them. And then he, would say, he also said that he's going to teach you some things that you're not ready to receive now, but you will be ready to receive then. So here's this promise that Jesus makes. And it's not a new promise because... In, a, in a, some way, it was delivered about 800 years previously by the prophet Joel. If you turn in your Old Testaments quickly to Joel chapter 2, and notice verses 28 through 32 that we're going to see in a moment here in Acts chapter 2. But in verse 28 through 32, we read, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my flesh or my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men's servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So about 800 years previous to Acts chapter 2, that, that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ, here we have this prophesying of Joel that Joel says there's going to come a time that God is going to pour out his spirit on all people. You're going to see people having visions, people having dreams, people speaking because they're inspired of God. When we turn back to Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so here we see this fulfillment that Joel had made 800 years previously, that Jesus had made prior to this, a short time prior to this, when he told the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem, that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, they would receive power from on high. And then Peter tells... Those at that time who said, well, these guys must be drunk because they're speaking a language that I don't know. And there are those in the religious world that have taken that and the fact that that what the apostles were speaking at that time was some language of angels or some unearthly type language. But listen to what the Bible says. Notice beginning in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. And there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his, what? Own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Galilee was up there. They they were the uneducated. They were the fishermen. They were just country folk. They're not the elite. They're not the educated elite. But yet they're speaking in, in our native language. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own languages the wonderful works of God. Years ago, before I started preaching full time, we had a business. And Shirley had one aspect of the business, and I had another aspect. And through a company that we were doing work for, we got to do a job in Puerto Rico. And the individual that we were doing a job for, he, he was in a an American, but he had married a woman from Puerto Rico. And he took us all, there was a bunch of us there doing work, and in the last night he all t- took us all out to this nice restaurant for dinner. And as we're sitting there, slowly the discussion is going from English to Puerto Rican, Hispanic. And, and most of the people that were there with us were Hispanic. And so here's Shirley and I and a couple other fellows from the United States, and it sounds like 
gibberish to us. And the individual that we were doing work for, he says, I've noticed over the years that when I'm out, you know, and people come from the United States and, and we get together, as everyone becomes comfortable with each other, that they tend to slip into their own dialect. Now, to me, what was being said about those who spoke Spanish or a, a dialect of it, it was gibberish. Could have been the voice of an angel for all I knew. Imagine on Pentecost where every one of the disciples is speaking a different language. And here I am, I'm from Parthia, and I'm standing next to a guy from Mede, and over here is a Roman who speaks Latin, and behind me there's a guy from Libya that speaks whatever they speak in Libya, and they're up there going, amen, amen, and I'm thinking, what in the world is all this gibberish? But it wasn't gibberish to those who heard the good news of Christ in their own dialect. Don't let anyone ever tell you that what the apostles were saying there was some kind of angelic tongue that nobody understood. Speaking in tongues was speaking in a language that you did not study, that God gave you the ability to teach the gospel to those who had a different language than you and that they could hear it in their language. And if you've ever used an interpreter, and I know there's many here that have been to Ghana and been to other areas doing mission work, if you've ever used an interpreter, you appreciate how difficult it is to go from one language to another. Don't let anyone ever tell you there's a word-for-word -word translation. Don't ever let anyone tell you, I translated what you said word for word. Because there may not be a word in their language for what you said. So here, on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to teach the gospel in languages they had, they had never studied. How is it that we've heard this declared in our own dialect? He goes on, others mocking said, they are full of wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, Men in Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But, he ties it back to what Joel had promised 800 years previously, but, this is what which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. And he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. God keeps his promises. If God didn't keep that promise that he gave the prophet Joel to keep, to, that he gave the prophet Joel to prophesy about, and if God didn't keep his promise that Jesus told the apostles, you wait in Jerusalem because in a short time you're going to receive power on high. If God didn't keep those promises, how can I know, you and I know, that he's going to keep the promises that he makes to you and me? 
When God tells us that righteousness is obtained through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that if there must be Christ, there's no other way to God except through Christ, I have to believe that. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, both the Jew first and the Greek. And therein is the righteousness from God revealed. If that's not true, and the only reason I know that it's true is because God says it is. It's a promise from God. If I want to be righteous, I have to come to him through Jesus Christ and through his gospel. God tells us that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will ensure that we have the necessities of life and we can be certain of it. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, that whole section beginning in verse 25 down through verse 34, talking about the necessities of life. And God, Jesus says, here's these birds over here. Here's these plants over here. You don't see them out planting gardens. You don't see birds out there cultivating worms, but God provides for them. And if you seek his, his righteousness and his kingdom first, he's going to make sure, he guarantees, he ensures that you're going to have the things that you need to survive in this life. That's a promise we can trust in. Now, he doesn't say he's going to buy us a Mercedes-Benz. He doesn't say that he's going to buy us a, a 10-bedroom mansion. But he knows we need food, and we need clothing, and he needs shelter. And David said, I was old, young, and now I am old, and I've never seen the righteous begging bread. If we trust God makes a promise, and we need to know that we can trust in that, and we can trust in it because we see where God has fulfilled his promises. And lastly, when God tells us there's an inheritance waiting for his people, his children, those of faith, waiting in heaven, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we know it's certain because we learn from Acts chapter 2 that God keeps his promise. Whether it's just one given a few days previously or it was one given 800 years previously, God's not like you and I. He doesn't forget. And he keeps his promises. So we learn from Acts chapter 2 that God keeps his promises. We learn from Acts chapter 2 that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. When Thomas saw the wounds of Jesus, remember doubting Thomas? The other apostles had seen Jesus, and oh, we've seen Jesus. He's resurrected. Thomas says, unless I stick my finger in the hand, unless I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And we say, oh, that's doubting Thomas. Thomas had no faith. No. If you look at that account, Jesus never condemns Thomas. Thomas wanted evidence. And you and I should demand evidence from the Bible for everything that we practice religiously. It's not about my opinion. It's not about the eldership's opinion. It's not about anybody's opinion. It's about what the Bible says. Evidence. And when Thomas saw the evidence, when he saw the wounds in Jesus' hands, and he saw the wound in Jesus' side, he says, my Lord and my God. What did Jesus say? Thomas, you should have believed. He didn't say that, did he? He said, blessed are you, Thomas, because you see and you believe, but more blessed are those who don't see and believe. 
In other words, there's going to be evidence. They're not going to be able to put their hand in my, their finger in my holes in my hand. They're not going to be able to put their hand in the hole in my side. But they will believe too from the evidence that the scripture gives. And so when Thomas referred to Jesus as Lord and God, and, and as my Lord and my God, there's this idea that that appellation, that name, that nomenclature, Lord, is that Jesus is deity. And the word Christ was just the anglicized form of the Greek word Christos, which was the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. In other words, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is the divine anointed one of God. Have this mind in you as was also in Christ who thought equality with God not something to be held on to, but humbled himself and came in the form and likeness of man. Philippians chapter 2, 5 and following. So in verse 36 there, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that Jesus that this Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Christ. So how did Peter get to that position that he could say that? First, he says, look at the miracles. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to God by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourself also know. Two things. God showed Jesus to be genuine. That word attested there. It's like those things that, that, that people that separate uh, precious metal from, from the slag that's there. In other words, God showed Jesus to be genuine. That he wasn't slag, but he was the real thing. And he did it through signs, wonders, and miracles. Remember when Jesus went to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Or Nicodemus went to Jesus, excuse me. Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. Because no one could do the things that you do except you be from God. God showed Jesus to be genuine by the signs, miracles, and wonders which God did in your midst as you yourself also know. I'm not sure if it was Paul saying to Festus or Felix or to Agrippa, but to one of them, he says, these things weren't done in a corner when he's preaching about Jesus. In other words, these things weren't done in the back room someplace. These miracles of Jesus weren't done around the corner. Years ago when I was in Ghana, there was this boy that was a big buzz as we were there in this one village. This little boy was raising people from the dead. I says, well, show me a dead person. It's in that village over there. It's always in the other village. It's always over there. It wasn't like that with Jesus. It wasn't done in a corner. God showed him to be genuine. We see the fulfillment of prophecy as he begins. For David says concerning him, 
I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life and make me full of joy in your presence. Here's this, this uh, prophecy of David. And Peter quotes that, and then he says this. Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely about the patri patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What was Peter saying? You go over here where all the kings are, are buried, and there's David. You open up that tomb, you're going to see David's bones. And what was Peter saying? You open up the tomb of Jesus, there's no bones there. There's no bones there. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul, Christ's soul, was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, where, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. That he sits at the right hand of God. That it's his footstool that, that his enemies are going to be under. He is the one that's being exalted. And we see the four arguments for the deity of Christ. One is miracles. Secondly, the fulfillment of the prophecy of David. Third, the resurrection of Christ. Him whom you crucified through lawless hands. God raised up, verse 24, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held about it, held by it. And then the miraculous uh, demonstrations which were taking uh, due to Christ sending the Holy Spirit as we saw there in verses 33 through 36. Jesus just wasn't a man. Jesus just wasn't a good man. He wasn't like Mahatma Gandhi. He wasn't a, 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 a profound teacher, maybe as you might say Confucius. Jesus is the son of the living God. He is God in the flesh. In John chapter 8 and verse 24, when Jesus said, except you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. He's using the same verbiage that God used back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses, chapter 3 and 4, when Moses asked, as he looks at this bush that's burning and it's not being consumed, who should I say that has sent me? And the response says, tell them, I am has sent you. Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and we learn that from Acts chapter 2. And then, since we've learned 
that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. What is our proper response to that? When I truly understand that Jesus just wasn't some prophet from some desert area in the Near East, that he just wasn't some carpenter from Nazareth, when I truly come to the conclusion that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that he is deity, that he died on the Christ, the cross, that his blood might wash away my sins, what is my response to that? Notice what Peter says. Now when they heard this, heard what? That Jesus is both Lord and Christ and all the arguments that Peter made. Now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. You ever had you been cut to your heart? You ever felt so guilty that you just wanted to crawl under a rock? Do you ever look back on your life and say, what was I thinking? How could I have done that? Was I that vile of a person? They were cut to their heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? We've just crucified the person that we've been waiting for for 1,500 years. We've just crucified God's son. We've just crucified he who is both Lord and Christ. What should we do? And notice Peter's response. Then Peter said, repent. Repent. Repentance begins here. And it ends with our feet. Or continues with our feet. Repentance begins here. From this point on. I'm going to serve God, him, and him only am I going to serve. Where he says go, I will go. What he says do, I will do. What he says to say, I will say. It is all about God. This is where I am at when I repent. And then my feet and my mouth and my body take me to do that. In Acts chapter 26, verse 19 and 20, here's Peter, or Paul before Agrippa. And he's talking about his mission. And he says to Agrippa there in Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and notice, do works befitting of repentance. It's more than just a change of mind. It's changing our actions. Peter says, repent and let each one of you be baptized. Matthew 16, 16, Jesus said, he that believes, or uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 28, verse 18 and 19, all authority was given to Jesus in heaven and earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Ananias comes to Saul, who we know as Paul. Comes to Saul and he says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized, calling um, arise and be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter tells us that baptism is the point at which we are saved. The like figure under baptism does now save you, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. There is nothing magical about this water back here in this baptist, baptistry. But it's an answer of you. That you want a clean conscience, a clear conscience, a good conscience before God. Because God has chosen immersion and water to the point that he says that at that point you are buried with Christ with baptism to arise and walk in newness of life. Your conscience is clear from that point on. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 6. Notice back in Acts chapter 2 again. And notice verse 40 and 41. Clearly, those at that time who heard the words of Peter believed what he said about Jesus. Clearly, they understood that they were in deep trouble with God. What shall we do? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Notice what occurs. And with many other words... He testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Were they saved when Peter said that? The correct answer is no. Because if they were saved, he wouldn't have said it. And he was guided by the Holy Spirit. Be saved. Did they believe that Jesus was both Lord and Christ? Obviously they did, or they wouldn't have said, What shall we do? But Peter says, Be saved. From this perverse generation, crooked generation, your translation may say, and then those that what? Gladly received his word, what? Were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were what? Added to them. Were they added when they believed? No. Were they added when they repented? They were added when they gladly received his word and were baptized, immersed in water for the remission of your sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Then and only then were they added to those who were faithful to Christ. When they repented and were baptized, they received the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So from Acts chapter 2, we learn the proper response to learning that Jesus is both Lord and Christ is to repent and be baptized. Why is Acts chapter 2 or Acts the hub of the Bible? One of the reasons is that it shows us the proper response to one's belief and conviction that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So the question is, if you have not put Christ on in baptism and you believe that he is Lord and that he is Christ, why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling 
on the name of the Lord. If we can help in any way, won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement?